Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. If you're uh, new with us this morning, my name's Landon and alongside of Nicole and the rest of the team, I'm, I'm thankful to be uh, one of the people that get to, to serve you here for uh, us as a community that we call Restoration Church. And as Nicole mentioned, we're going to wrap up our series through the, uh, the Ten Commandments today with the final of the Ten, the Tenth Commandment on coveting. Uh, however, well, we're going to cover that, and then I'm kind of going to do this big, long recap of all 10. And we're going to have one crucial takeaway this week that was really just placed on my heart as I was reading in the scriptures and, and preparing for today. So here is my uh, warning to you. We are going to read a lot of the scriptures. Some of you are like, yes, I love the Bible. Others of you are like, oh, that's not good. I'm here just for like as quick as possible. Sorry, you're going to have to deal with it today. But in order to deal with it better, I think uh, it would be good if you actually pulled out a Bible and read it or pulled out a phone and, and read it on there. That is going to help. I don't know if I shared this or not the other day. Uh, our staff is getting older. We have a, a young staff overall. But we were talking about watching TV shows at night. And my wife and I the other night were watching this show. And then like someone on the, the show got a message on their phone. And I'm like, wait, pause it. I'm like, babe, do you think we're supposed to be able to read what it says on the phone? And she's like, I don't know. I'm like, hold on. And I walk all the way up to the TV. And I'm like, yep, it's crystal clear up there. We should be able to read that. <laughs> So it would have been helpful if I put on my glasses to, uh, to see. It would be helpful if you read in your Bible this morning. That's my, my takeaway. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, 10th commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. How unfortunate that last sentence, because very few of those things are things you could probably take from your neighbor today. Coveting 101, let's talk about what that actually means. Uh, to covet is not the same as to simply want or to desire something. I think that's a mistake we make when we think about coveting something. Uh, it is not that simple. It's much more specific. That's why it's attached uh, to somebody. This command is relational, and maybe you've noticed that throughout this study on these Ten Commandments, every one of them is always relational. There's no command in the scriptures in these Ten Commandments that isn't somehow relationally connected to someone else, whether God or neighbor, and that is the same with this. Wants and desires, I feel like we sometimes in the church treat as if they're bad things. We shouldn't want anything or desire anything, and that's just False. I think that's a lie that has grown within the church for, for some reason or maybe a misunderstanding of the scriptures. God himself created us with desires, relational desires, desires to, to cultivate sexual desires. All kinds of desires are things that God placed within us that in and of themselves are good things. Where we get into trouble is when we allow sin to taint and twist and distort those desires, and then they grow into something really strong and evil over time. But desire in and of itself 
is not bad. So coveting is to desire something specific. It's to desire something that belongs to your neighbor. To covet is not to cruise down the street and see a beautiful home and go, wow, I really love their driveway or that stone or this design or that landscaping. I would like that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good and healthy and fine. To covet is to drive down the street and see a specific home and go, I want that house. I want that home, I want that life, I want those things that that person has. It is to want something that belongs to another. Similarly, it's not the same as walking down the street and seeing an attractive person and going, they are beautiful. It's going down the street and seeing your neighbor's wife and going, I want her. It is setting a specific target and going, that is what I am pursuing. And I think that distinguishment is important. The Hebrew word hamad here for covets in Exodus means to desire earnestly, to long after, to covet. You can kind of feel the length of time built into this Hebrew word. It's not a quick glance. It's not one day or one time. It's over time going that or that person or that thing, whatever, is what I am pursuing. And Deuteronomy, which a couple, is a couple books after Exodus, the word Deuteronomy means second law. It's the second time it's given to God's people. It's a different Hebrew word, but it conveys something similar. It's to set one's desire on something, to zoom in, focus, see it, want it, pursue it over time. So again, it's not just a simple want or desire. It is a desire to have something that belongs to another. I read this uh, this week that I think is helpful. We need to be warned here against another enticing oversimplification. The 10th commandment is certainly not prohibiting all impulses, longings, desires, and passions. I talk about this often. We're going to try to throw a really great Christmas Eve Eve party because we need to throw great celebrations. So often, following Jesus seems boring, and this is one of the reasons, because we think all impulses, longings, desires, and passions are ungodly, and throughout church history at different points, that has been taught, and that is a false doctrine. God is the best at throwing celebrations and parties, and he made what is good that we desire. Here's the issue. We have to recognize that you and I are not trustworthy when it comes to our own desires. We have to turn our desires over to Jesus and go, I'm not capable of handling these well, so you lead my desires. But don't make the mistake of thinking desire in and of itself is bad. Then we look boring, and we shouldn't. We have the most to celebrate. The biblical anthropology, simply meaning the Bible's idea of what it means to be human, us being human the way we're made to be, does not discriminate against the instant and emotional levels of the human soul. Again, that's something God created. It does not promote an asceticism in which hunger for life is limited as completely as possible, as in certain radical currents in Buddhism and other Oriental religions. On the contrary, coveting is a clear warning, or this 10th commandment, against desires of a certain kind. <clears throat> against the selfish encroachment on God and the neighbor. Again, this is specific. Phil Reichen puts it this way. It's not simply wanting something we do not have. It's wanting something that someone else has. Command is clearly connected to the others. You can very easily see how coveting can lead as the inward sin of our heart to the outward sin of our hands, to theft, to murder, to adultery, to a host of other things. We're going to look this morning at one specific 
a specific example of how this, this covenant takes place and the result of it if we don't chop it down before it grows too strong. If you are looking in the scriptures, turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. I'm going to read the story of Ahab, who's one of the kings of God's nation, of his people, who he wrote the Ten Commandments for. And at this point, these kings are supposed to model and exemplify and lead and govern what the Ten Commandments were meant to be, a vision for a life that is good. And that's where we pick up 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. Some time passed after these events. Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard. It was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard so I can have it for a vegetable garden, since it was right next to my palace. I will give you a better vineyard in its place, or if you prefer, I will give you its value in silver. Seems like a fair-ish kind of deal. Here's this king, and I kind of imagine him on his little palace, or probably not little, it's probably a big palace patio, as the sun's going down, sipping some wine, envisioning his life, and enjoying, and looking down and going, man, this is great, I just had this wine delivered, or my servants went and picked it up, but wouldn't it be better if I knew it came from right down there? That would just be really rewarding, to have someone else work in the field that I own, to plant this vineyard, and then reap the rewards years later. I imagine this king kind of, he was, he was a visionary when it came to what he wanted, and so here he is on his patio again as the sun is going down, and the evening breeze is going on, sipping his wine, going, I want that. That's not bad, or I like that. Where it turned, where it went negative is when he knew that it belonged to someone else and he chose to not care. He allowed the seed of covetousness to grow, to be rooted, to build itself up. He could have stopped at that point, but he chose not to. After uh, I taught in the first service, someone came up to me and said, I think the most grievous sin of all is that he decided to turn the vineyard into a vegetable garden. He didn't like <laughs> that trade. <clears throat> Naboth said to Ahab, I will never give my father's inheritance to you. It was actually against the law for a family to permanently sell their lands. Because when that happened, it would create a socioeconomic disaster as families lost land, and it would, it would really disrupt everything. And so he wasn't allowed to legally sell it, yet Ahab asked anyway. Verse 4, so Ahab went to his palace, resentful and angry because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had told him. He had said, I will not give you my father's inheritance. Here's where I just, I picture my, my two-year-old, you know, like... This, I could hear my two-year-old saying something like this. I go, what's wrong? You told me no. He lay down on his bed, turned his face away, and didn't eat any food. Side note, anytime you in an adult body start to act like a two-year-old, there's a good, like, that's a good sign or symptom that sin is rising up within so he's resentful, he's pouting on his bed, turning his face away, not eating any food. Then his wife Jezebel came to him and said, why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? 
Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, he replied. I told him, give me your vineyard for silver, or if you wish, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Again, I'm hearing the two-year-old. Verse 7, then his wife Jezebel said to him, now exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food, and be happy. That is really an intriguing sentence to me because if you go watch TV later today or listen on the radio or open the mail, you're going to find all kinds of ads and they will actually say something similar to that. Get up and be happy. Grab it for yourself. The life that you want is right there. The only thing keeping you from the things you want is you, so go take possession of them and use our bank or retirement fund or car or whatever to get there. There's actually kind of a a tie to the negative side. I'm not saying it's all negative by any means. There's a lot of beauty and and goodness and godliness in the American dream. But there's a lot of ugliness, too, and this is part of it. We take God out of the equation, and we want to play the role of God, and so we get up. We think that happiness is something we can attain, and we reach out to grasp it. And that is the advice that Jezebel gives to her husband. Note, at this point, he is trusting someone else with his desires. He can't handle the emotion and what he desires in this moment in time. He does not turn to God and go, hey, I'm not trustworthy with my own desires. I can't deal with the emotion and what I want and everything that's happening. He goes to his wife, who's untrustworthy as well with his desires, but he turns to her nonetheless. Get up, eat some food, be happy, for I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she, Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. In the letters she wrote, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. Then seat two wicked men opposite him and have them testify against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. This woman is awful. Verse 11, the men of his city, the elders and nobles who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had commanded them, as was written in the letters she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. The two wicked men came in and sat opposite him. Then the wicked men testified falsely against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Israelite. There it is again. Get up, go take it. Reach out your hand and grab it. Take possession of what you want because you're the only thing keeping you from it. Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite who refused to give it to you for silver since Naboth isn't alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. What's kind of crazy about this is Ahab had like seven to eight different windows of opportunity where he could have confessed and repented and turned it around and maybe things would have been all right. It could have started when he first gazed off of the patio on his palace at this vineyard that he thought looked really good. And apparently he was right. It was a great vineyard. And he could have chose to go, that's a great vineyard. Good for that guy. But he didn't. He said, who owns it? I want it. 
could have confessed and repented there, but he did not. He could have, after pouting, which maybe that's an appropriate response, that he couldn't have it, ended it there and confessed and repented and talked about his desires and handed them over to Jesus, but he did not. He trusted his desires with someone who was also untrustworthy, his wife. And he did what uh, we're pretty good at doing. While evil was happening... He just turned the other way and pretended he didn't realize. He didn't necessarily take matters into his own hands, but he looked the other way while someone did something that he knew was far from okay. He did not confess and repent at that point either. He could have confessed and repented after this false testimony was given before this man was murdered, but he did not. He could have confessed and repented after the man was murdered, but he did not. And he had one last chance after his wife commanded him to go take possession of this thing he wanted, but he did not. He went down to do so. Confession and repentance were options all along the way. They just were never an option that he thought was good enough. Coveting is a seed that starts small, but once planted, it can go it can grow very quickly. And once it is rooted there, it is very hard to get rid of. I want to rewind a little bit now and see how we got there with Ahab, the king. I'm going to turn back a few pages to 1 Kings 16. Let me read beginning in verse 29. Ahab, son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Judah's king, Asa. Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. That's really bad. Not like equal or he was a real bad, like more than all who were before him. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Hold on to that because that is going to matter later. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, were a trivial matter, he married Jezebel. Be careful who you marry. The daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and then proceeded to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh God of Israel than all the kings of Israel were who were before him. Let me read that again. We're going to just imprint this in our minds. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh God than all of the kings of Israel before. He's not just bad. He's the worst of the worst. He is evil. His sin is disgusting. He's to be hated. Whoa, Siri, I'm talking. You aren't. What is going on here? First Kings 16.33. She knows the Bible pretty well. Ahab is awful. We need to to keep that in mind here. Now, we're going to rewind even more to Exodus chapter 20. Ahab is a king of Israel. Jesus, or Yahweh God, had saved Israel from oppression and slavery and abuse, and then he gave them this foundation, this way of life that would be good into the new land that he was also providing them for. Eventually, the kings were supposed to govern this and make it happen. I'm going to read all of the Ten Commandments now that we've been studying throughout these weeks. Then God spoke all these words, Exodus 21. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. In Exodus And throughout the rest of the scriptures, you're going to read one line so many times. This is the foundation of it. Who God is. He says, I am 
meaning do not forget me. Do not forget what I've done. Another way to kind of put it in the positive is always remember the things I have accomplished for you. He doesn't say always remember who you are and what you've done and how you've provided. Always remember, do not ever forget who I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Again, meaning when you cried out, when you were desperate, when you had no hope, I showed up. That's what Jesus does. Verse 3. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Remember that too. We're going to come back to that. Verse six, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony against your neighbor, do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave, his ox or donkey, insert vineyard here, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Ahab, who was supposed to lead this effort, is leading the effort to break all of the Ten Commandments as quickly as possible. He is doing pretty bad. It's not looking good for Ahab at this point. Again, those Ten Commandments are a vision for what is good, a good, wholesome, healthy way of life. Yet he believed, he listened to other voices that said they had something better to offer than what God had placed on the table. And so often, those voices 100% still speak today, and so often we, like Ahab, listen. Ahab's first mistake was to attempt to follow Yahweh God and other gods. Notice he didn't neglect Yahweh God totally. He just chose to add to him. He followed Yahweh God and other gods or attempted to. He built temples. He made sacrifices. He worshiped them. He was devoted to them, which is something we're clearly not supposed to do. There's a reason, there's a sequencing to these Ten Commandments. The first set of commands all have to do with our relationship with God because if that falls apart, you can guarantee your relationship with people will fall apart too because then our selfishness takes over. If we don't have Jesus, our selfishness always wins. So we can look at Ahab and think, what a, what a moron for serving two gods at once. But then we have to ask ourselves, it's not wooden images, things carved with our hands. Who are the gods that we worship? Who are the gods that we sacrifice to? Maybe most importantly, who or what are the gods that we place our trust in? We don't serve gods like they did, but are you pursuing adamantly the god of security? Are you building up financial security, physical security? Do you serve the god of comfort? 
and your life can feel pretty good. Gods of pleasure go from one thing to the next looking for that little hit of happiness in whatever form it comes or of escape. Is it a god of identity where you're this close or you just achieved that promotion or position or look or whatever it might be? Are we too attempting to serve two gods at one time? Because the whole foundation of the Ten Commandments is Jesus saying, me alone. Only me. Where are we at with that? Turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Ahab's breaking almost every rule. He's serving two gods at once. And so God throws out this punishment and there's this incredibly terrible drought and famine. It has not rained for years. I, as I read this, which ironically as I read most of the scriptures, somehow I just see the Lion King playing in my mind all the time. But you know the scene where Scar takes over, Mufasa's dead, Simba's running away hiding, and there's all these songs and dancing and it's fun and good, and then it just goes brown, like really ugly brown, and everyone's mad at each other and grumpy because there's no water and then there's no food and it's the circle of life and blah, blah, blah. That's what it's like here. Everyone's mad, it's all brown, they don't know where to get food or what animals are gonna die. That's kind of what's happening, and Ahab is doing what most people do when they're in deep sin. He's staying as far away from mirrors as possible, and he's looking to who we can point at to blame. We pick up in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, verse 1. After a long time, meaning no water, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, uh, God's kind of primary prophet at this time, in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called for Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord and took a hundred prophets and hid them, fifty men to a cave and provided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. Ahab said to Obadiah, go throughout the land to every spring of water and to every wadi. Perhaps we'll find grass so we can keep the horses and mules alive and not have to destroy any cattle. Again, things are bad. They divided the land between them in order to cover it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went the other way by himself. While Obadiah was walking along the road, Elijah suddenly met him. Elijah's been in hiding. Why? Because of the evil of Jezebel and Ahab. When Obadiah recognized him, he fell with his face to the ground and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? It is, he replied. Go tell your lord Elijah is here. You'd think that would be met with a good response. Here's what Obadiah says. What sin have I committed that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord, Ahab, has not sent someone to search for you. When they said he's not here, he made that kingdom or nation swear they had not found you. Now you say, go tell your lord Elijah is here. But when I leave you, the spirit of the Lord may carry you off to some place I don't know. Then when I go report to Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Again, this guy is evil. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Wasn't it reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of the prophets of the Lord, 50 men to a cave, and I provided them with food and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Ahab, the worst of the worst of the kings, who no one has done this level of evil in the sight of the Lord or been as devoted to evil as this guy. 
Verse 15, then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand today, I will present myself to Ahab. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, you destroyer of Israel? There he is pointing the finger and avoiding mirrors. To which Elijah replies, I have not destroyed Israel, but you and your father's house have because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now all of Yahweh's prophets are hiding because they don't want to be killed. There's 850 of these other prophets, and Elijah says, listen, we're going to have this massive contest. I don't have time to read it, so we're just going to tell you what happens. But it is one of the most epic accounts in all of the scriptures. Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get everybody to be witnesses, and you're going to pray, dance, prattle along, do whatever you want to do to get your God's attention, and you're going to put a bull on an altar and tell your God to consume it with fire. And in that way, then we'll all know that your God is the God that is an authority and can be served. And everyone will be here to see this moment. So they invite everybody and they start preparing the bull. They make an altar. They put the bull on the altar. And then I'm going to read just these three verses because I think they're incredible. And the, the trash talking is next level by Elijah, verse 26. So they took the bull that he gave them. They prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Side note, that's a long time to be praying. Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away. Or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. What I love about verse 28 is they actually listened to his trash talk. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. Those are three phrases you will never have to say if you're following Jesus. There will be a sound and he will answer and he will pay attention. That's the story this book tells us, that he shows up in his timing, in his way, in his voice. But if you listen and you pay attention and you continue to wait, just this Advent season we're in the midst of, Jesus will show up. Jesus will come through. Nothing happens for them. And so it's Elijah's turn. There's these 850 prophets, just one Elijah. And so he builds an altar with 12 stones symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people, remembering that they were uh, brought out of captivity from Egypt when these 10 commandments were established. And then he does something absolutely absurd and ridiculous, and that would have made him even more hated than he already was. He prepares the bull, builds the altar, and then he takes the most precious resource of the day, water, no one has it, and he goes, hey, dig a trench, because I'm going to waste a bunch of water. I want you to hate me more. And he has people pour all of the water on the bowl because that's what you do when you want to build a fire. First, you just wet it as much as possible because that's going to help. Until the trench is filled with water, everyone's looking at this wasted water going, how could you do this? And then he prays and he says something beautiful. God, show yourself. 
Make yourself known. Let them know that it is you who's in control. And God does what? He shows up. That's what Jesus does. After the silence, Jesus shows up and the fire comes through and the bull is consumed. And there's one key point. Here's actually the whole reason I'm telling you this. Who was there to see it? Ahab. Ahab witnessed it. And you would think that after all of this evil he's done, after everything he's seen, Yahweh provide for him, now would be the moment to confess and repent and turn to the one who actually answers. And then we pick up in verse 19 with this terrible woman. 19.1, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets, meaning uh, the prophets of Baal with the sword. Verse 2, So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah is afraid and he goes and he hides again because of her evil. She doubles down. What does Ahab do? Nothing. He just witnessed this event, this battle in which there's no question about which God is actually an authority, and he still does not confess and repent and turn it away at that point. We turn now to 1 Kings 20, 13. A number of years goes by. It's almost like this intermission in this account, in this narrative, and now there's a big battle again. This time, an increasingly evil, more evil than Ahab, maybe, nation, outsiders come to attack Israel, and Ahab's afraid. He's going to just give in and hand over the land and anything that this guy wants. And then God speaks through a prophet to him and says this, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, this is what Yahweh says. Do you see this entire great army? Watch, I am handing it over to you today so that you may know that I am Yahweh. He says, witness this. In case I've not shown you enough, one more time, I show up. It's not about you or your faithfulness or your army or your initiatives or what you think you can accomplish. Watch me. And then what do you think Yahweh God does? He comes through. They're victorious. Another miracle, and who was there to witness it? Ahab sees once again, not his own faithfulness, his own foolishness. He has an opportunity to confess and repent and turn it around there. Guess what? He does not. And time goes on. He continues with his evil after all that he has seen. Murder, theft, false testimony against the neighbor, coveting, all of the things. Like He's crushing through this list fast. He's the worst of the worst. It's recorded multiple times. And that's where we pick ourselves back up and 1 Kings 21 where we started with this vineyard, Naboth. He wants it for himself. We read 16 and stopped there. Let me pick up again. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it, to reach out and grasp for what he wanted to be his own, even though it wasn't. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Get up and go to meet Ahab, king of Israel. I'm sure Elijah was excited to have to go see him again. 
You'll find him in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Tell him, this is what the Lord says. Have you murdered and also taken possession? Then tell him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked Naboth's blood, the dogs will also lick your blood. Ahab said to Elijah, so you have caught me, my enemy. He replied, I have caught you because you devoted yourself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight. This is what the Lord says. I'm about to bring disaster on you and will sweep away your descendants. I will eliminate all of Ahab's males, both slave and free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked my anger and caused Israel to sin. The Lord also speaks of Jezebel. The dogs will eat Jezebel in the plot of land at Jezreel. He who belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And he who dies in the field, the birds of the sky will eat. Still, in case we've not caught this yet, still, there was no one like Ahab, which is either going to be a great compliment or the opposite. There was no one like Abel, or like Ahab who devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight because his wife Jezebel incited him. He committed the most detestable acts by going after idols as the Amorites had, whom the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. And I think to myself, thank God his end is near, because this guy is the worst. Then we read in verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth over his body, and fasted. He lay down in sackcloth and walked around subdued. And I think to myself, a little too little too late, or a lot too little, and way too late. You've had enough chances all along the way. You could have got it right, and you did not. He doesn't deserve any more chances. This is the end. It has been pronounced. He knows it. Everybody knows it, right? Have you ever seen the the movie Silver Linings Playbook? Anybody? In that movie, there's this scene where the, the main character played by Bradley Cooper is, is reading a book. He's living in his parents' home, trying to get his life back on track. And they're looking at him as he's reading this book, chapter after chapter, going, we didn't even know he could read. Like, they're astonished he's diving into this this intently. And, and eventually, they go to sleep, and the, the camera pans out, and you see that every house, one by one in the neighborhood in the city, shuts their lights off. Everyone's going to bed, except for one light you can see from a distance in the upstairs of the house he's living in where he's reading this book and it shows you the clock and it says 4 a.m. and he's still flipping through the pages intently invested in this story and then it pans out again and you hear the crickets everyone's asleep it's a peaceful night blah 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 and then he finishes and he closes it and it zooms out one last time and the next thing you hear is the glass shattering as he chucks the book out of the window because he's so angry and he yells out an obscenity what the and he's so mad at what happens next and as I read it this week right here in first kings 21 that's how I feel about what God is doing Go, God, what in the world could you possibly be thinking? When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth over his body, and fasted. He lay down in sackcloth and walked around subdued. If I'm God, way too late. This is over. You had your chance. Good thing I'm not God. Here's what God says. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I will not... Bring the disaster during his lifetime because he has humbled himself, confessed and repented before me. I will bring the disaster on this house during his son's 
lifetime. Here's one crucial takeaway I see from these Ten Commandments. It is never too late to turn to Jesus in confession. Yet, when it comes to confession, the sooner the better. Because there's still a price to be paid. There's still justice that has to happen. And Jesus took our place and he pays for our sin. Yet, there's still a, a reality attached to this. In Exodus 20, we read in verses 1 through 6 that he will punish to the third and fourth generation his descendants would be wiped out because of their evil attached to Jezebel so that no one else would have to endure that evil. Yet he was also forgiven. Yet his existence, his sin, his failures, when he knew he was too far gone, were met with the love of Jesus. It is never too late to turn to Jesus in confession. Yet when it comes to confession again, the sooner the better. Imagine if at any point along his massive failure of a life, he decided earlier to repent. Probably could have saved his family. Probably could have saved the nation. Probably could have had so much more. He already had everything. Yet he allowed the seeds of covetousness to grow. He listened to his own desires and trusted other people who weren't trustworthy with them instead of handing them over to Jesus. The whole time God was speaking to him, the whole time God was showing him, the whole time God was there and he chose again and again and again to reject him. When it comes to following Jesus, to embracing his vision for the good life, the Ten Commandments are. They're not just a test, or they're not even they're not even a test. They're a vision for what is good. We need to not practice perfection. We need to practice confession. It's one of the most significant mistakes we make as Christians. We go, oh, cool. Following Jesus now. I've asked them into my heart to be my savior. And then we forget to depend on him. And then what we do is we walk into buildings that we call churches and we pretend to be perfect. And then we go hide everything about our real lives because we can't share what's actually going on. And that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is not that we're now perfect, but we are increasingly aware every day that we follow Jesus. We remember not our own faithfulness, but his faithfulness. We will always not forget what he does, that he shows up time and time Again, and so what we put into practice, the more mature we get as followers of Jesus, the more reps we have in this life with him, we get better, not at perfecting ourselves, but practicing confession. As I think about these 10 commandments, that's the heart and soul of this. The first four commandments are all about our relationship to God. If you mess those up, you're pretty much guaranteed to mess up the rest in some form or fashion along the way. Why? Because you depend on self. What we see in these commandments is that it never has been and it never will be about us. It's about his goodness and his faithfulness and the fact that he's the main character. And no matter how far gone you seem, it's never too late to start with confession because Jesus is right there with welcoming, loving, forgiving arms. And the sooner, the better and the less pain and suffering you cause and have to endure along the way. I want to close reading Matthew 15, 19. 
Jesus is speaking here and he quotes uh, from the, the Ten Commandments. He says this. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 16. He says, are, you, are even you still lacking in understanding to his disciple Peter? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated, but what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a man. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and blasphemies. There's this bridge from the Ten Commandments, and where does the sin start? Where is it seated? Where does it grow? Where is it rooted? Within the heart. My heart and your heart need help, and they will tomorrow too. And so the action, the takeaway from this is to go, Jesus, I'm not trustworthy even with my own desires. Desire in and of itself is not bad, but I trust you with what I desire. Show me what is good and lead me in that way. And in the meantime, we have to get really good at practicing confession. Me and one of our elders, Aaron, is, is part of our, our trellis, our six rooms and kind of keys to practicing the way of Jesus. Do this once a week. We have a quick 15-minute phone call on Wednesdays. And it is shocking how I forget about it every single Wednesday at 3. And he's so gracious because he calls me every single Wednesday at 3. Or he just knows I'm really messed up and that I need it. So we call, and sometimes it's short. Sometimes it's long. It's usually nothing very significant at all. But it's so good week after week. I actually really look forward to the call. Just to go, what's going on, man? And we pray for each other. It's not formal. It's just good. The further along we get with Jesus, the quicker we're to recognize his grace and mercy and forgiveness, not to practice perfection, but to practice confession, because then we're depending on him and not ourselves. His way is good, and he's the one to lead us there. We can't do it ourselves. We don't reach out and grasp and take possession. Go, Jesus, I trust you. My first job is just to follow. Let's pray. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, and if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.